There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A very good afternoon to you and welcome to The Late Lunch. Orla Carmody filling in for Jerry Kelly all this week. And I'm delighted to have your company. Lots of interesting things to talk about today. First of all, that gorgeous weather on Saturday. Oh my goodness, was that a pet day or what? Only way to describe it. Absolutely fabulous. I know it's raining again today, but my goodness, that day was badly needed. I took myself off out cycling. And you know the funny thing about cycling in your neighbourhood? You discover things about the neighbourhood you never knew and you've lived there for years and you say, how did I not know about that? So I was cycling in the Carnstown, Donore area and I came across this beautiful cemetery. I don't know what it's called. If you know, you can, of course, tell us what it is. But this beautiful little cemetery uh, on the Battle of the Boyne um, Heritage Trail and overlooking the bridge into Drada. Absolutely gorgeous up there and very, very peaceful. And the birds and the sunshine, it was just amazing. And then I cycled the ramparts in Drada and, you know, the ramparts ramparts are such an amenity for us all. What a gift we have the ramparts all along the Boyne into Drogheda. I absolutely love them and cycle them as often as I can. But you know, I heard then over the weekend that Board Planola have turned down the application for a similar route linking the centre of Drogheda out to Leytown because of potential disturbance to the wildlife. And, you know, yes, we need to preserve the birds and the wildlife. But I began thinking, you know, we also have to preserve human life. And isn't that the whole point of building a similar boardwalk out there that we take people off, uh, walkers and cyclists, take them off that very busy road. Now, I must say motorists on that particular stretch are usually very courteous. I've never come across a rude one yet. They are courteous and they do give you plenty of space. But it is, of course, the point of a boardwalk and obviously um, the fact that it's on stilts um, hopefully then it wouldn't actually disturb the wildlife because it's up above it and then of course as I've said pedestrians are safe away from the traffic and then think of all the exercise it saves the expense to the healthcare system if people are out exercising every day cycling and walking and using a wonderful amenity so I seriously hope we will actually see that uh, boardwalk built from Drogheda out to Laytown at some point I hope Louth County Council take on board the feedback from uh, Board Planola about the wildlife and let's go again. Let's get that application in again because we desperately need it. No guessing which side of that particular divide I'm on. Well, if you were with us last Friday, we had a very courageous guest in studio. You might remember Rebecca Griffin and she was talking about the loss of her son, Ryan, to suicide at the extraordinarily young and tragic age of 14. And how brave was Rebecca coming into us? And she really wanted to highlight how we have to really look at and listen to our young people so we have an idea of what's going on in their lives. And, you know, there was a a post on social media over the weekend and I didn't actually get the name of the person who posted it, but it was absolutely beautiful and I wanted to share it with you. It is goes like this. When your kid is having a bad day, get them a snack, go for a drive, offer to listen. And if they open up and tell you all the things, keep any judgment about what they say to yourself. They don't need a lecture. They need to be heard. 
they will be much more willing to talk if they have a safe safe space to do it. I thought that was absolutely beautiful. And apologies, I didn't get the name of the poster, but I really wanted to share it with you. And it takes us very nicely to our first guest today, former Meath footballer Damien Sheridan. And Damien, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you for coming into LMFM. Hello. Thanks for having me. And Damien, you're, I know now, the Disability and Inclusion um, Officer with the GAA, which is a fantastic role. And I know you want to talk to us about watching out for young players and making sure they're safe and they have that safe space, exactly as we heard there. But you were bullied unmercifully yourself as a child. You came back from England. Tell us what happened. Uh, Yeah, so I suppose um, we came back to Navan in 1996. Uh, we spent 10 very happy years in Birmingham. Sorry, Damien, I think your mic isn't working. Let's switch that other one there. Let's try that one instead. How about that? Go again Maybe there. there Can we hear you there now, Mike? Have we got the mic on there, Louise? Thank you, Damien. So you were uh, you were a, a young person living in England with the family and the family decided to bring you home. And yeah. uh, home you came. Did you come home for dad's work or what was it exactly? Uh, yeah, so we were actually over here on summer holidays uh, in the summer of 96 and uh, dad was approached for a job and we ended up coming back then um, in 96. Um, me and dad would have came first because I had to get in straight into second level school and they were kind of quite conscious to get me into school straight away and I four siblings so they came in a couple of months with mom um afterwards so there was more of a stress to get me into school straight away and kind of transition in which in kind of hindsight was the hardest thing in my life I suppose. So you and dad land home to Ireland after growing up in Birmingham was it? Yeah we were in Birmingham spent 10 happy years there immersed in the Irish society and community playing football John Mitchell's there and very tight-knit kind of community we had lots of friends close-knit friends and families so then we came back here then and started our life then in Avon, which ended up kind of not as happy a start for me as I hoped. Why was that, do you think? Um, well, I suppose coming back in 96, I came back with quite a strong Birmingham accent. You can probably hear in we my... We can hear the yeah, traces of it, a indeed. Bit of a bit of a mongrel accent there. So, um, yeah, I came back and I suppose it was it was the troubles up the north at the time and I'm coming back with a English accent, so... It probably wasn't the most accommodating accent to come back with. Um, went into St. Pat's and I suppose the, sh- the biggest struggle for me was the social isolation in school. Um, I suppose for someone who wanted to be my friend, they would have had one out on a limb. I kind of always say that I had hello friends, people you'd say hello to, but they weren't really my friends. I'd never class. For me to have a friend is have someone to talk to and know that you can confide in them and they'll be there. And did you try, Damien? Did you really try and get to know those lads? Um, I would be quite a softy, so I was, I suppose, quite intimidated to bridge that gap. So I never felt that I would have spent a lot of lunch times walking around break on my own, um, which I found quite, quite sad and kind of would get to me a bit. And then I used to get fed up with that. So I would, I found a classroom and just done my homework at that stage. So at that stage, then I'd be going home after school and um, I'd have two hours before dad would come home. So I'd have all my homework done and... I'd have two hours of just sitting there on my own with my own And the thoughts. rest of the family weren't back at that no, point? No, they weren't so back you were on just your own yeah, I was on yeah. my own. It was just me, Dad, and we were living with his sisters in Avon. So I'd walk out of school and I'd walk close enough to a group so I wouldn't look like a loner, but not close enough to get recognised because I wasn't confident enough to make myself vulnerable in that group. So, um, 
yeah, them couple of hours after school kind of came quite hard, I suppose. Um, I'd sit a lot. I used to come home and have the telly on. I wouldn't want to hear the creaks in the house, the the noises being on my own. And then I kind of developed, a, well, I'm not saying I developed anxiety, but I felt quite anxious being in the house on my own. I was then I became quite worried about sitting there on my own. So I'd sit for nearly two hours with no telly on, just in silence, waiting for someone to come home so I wouldn't feel lonely anymore. And were you just isolated if that isn't bad enough I don't mean just in any you know lacking sense but was that the worst thing or then were you actively bullied and harassed by people um, I suppose I'm quite conscious of the word bullied um, I'm not ridiculing anyone or you know that was just life kind of thing but I do remember the one time it happened like they get punched in the face at school and I thought I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, what is after happening here? I'd never been hit, like be hit on the football pitch or whatever, but to get punched in the face, I I could tell you the colour of the sky outside, the name, number of the classroom, the subject I had, and I could tell you exactly how I felt that in that instant. And it was so degrading because I started crying. And then by the time the teacher came back to the class, I was in the midst of a panic attack. So I went off and was kind of talked about it. Um, whoever was dealing with it and came back to the class and I had then I had sectarian abuse written on my copy and that would have happened on a few different times and as I said I'd done my homework at break time I left England it was quite studious but I struggled big time with the transition of subjects here and then I just struggled with I sometimes wasn't even I was told not to hand in my homework because other lads wouldn't have it done and there'd be repercussions after class if I did hand it in so sectarian abuse was written on my copy quite a bit um, it's quite isn't that very sad as I'm hearing that and I know there were tough times and the north was dominating the headlines but that children in your class would actually think you were English because you had an English accent and you're yeah. as Irish as anyone and your parents are Irish yeah. and you were involved in all the Irish community in, in Birmingham very sad isn't it yeah and I suppose that's a big thing Like I am Irish I have an Irish passport I lived here until I was five years of age but I wasn't allowed to be nearly Irish when I came back and look they were, the people I was in school, they were all youngsters as well, so they probably had no comprehension of what was going on. And But I do, and 20 years later, 25 years later, I still know what it feels like that day. I can When I talk about that, it's like it was yesterday. So, But look, I tried out, tried to get on the junior team, the juvenile team and stuff like that to kind of bridge me and gap. And I suppose I was always looking for that validation from someone or something to be good enough or be recognised. And that's why I was trying to push for football teams, because... That was my safe haven, I suppose. Well, I suppose I have to say, Damien, you're a tall, fine man. And did did becoming, did growing up into a teenager and realising you could play football, was that was that a big help to you? Yeah, I suppose football gave me everything. It gave me that, um, I kind of say to people, it gave me that chance where I could just oh, take a sigh, the world stops. And I never, I never felt I wasn't good enough when I was playing football because... Mom and Dad always told us we were good enough, and they always kind of reinforced making us feel good. And they always, I was blessed that way. When we went home, we always felt loved, and we always felt good enough. And they always drove us to be the best that we could be. Um, so when I was in St Pat's, then in me leaving that year, I made the football team, and I couldn't believe it. It was like winning the lot for me, and we won the All Ireland that year. So I thought, wow, this every time I I used to pray that we'd have training every single day, every day. Because I'd have an hour of just going on the full pitch, cross the line, and the whole world stops. And then when I done me leaving, so I, I suppose I struggled, as I said, the, with the study side of school and the textbooks and subjects and stuff like that. So the football pitch gave me a chance to get away from it. And then when I done me leaving, so 
I had to leave school, but I was so anxious about my own identity and um, what to do with life and who I was and where I was going. I, had, I was petrified of leaving school, even though I hated the place. I didn't want to leave because I had football there. So I repeated me leaving basically on the sole basis that I knew I could play football. Um, I'm going to just pause you right there, Damien, because you, you tell your story about being a young person so well. And this must actually speak to to parents all over the, the place listening to this and trying to help their young people. And I want to come back to you in a moment and hear about how you took that forward and how you actually share your story with schools. But we're going to take a quick break. I'm with uh, Damien Sheridan, Meath former player who is telling us about his life and how he turned it around. You're on the late lunch and I'm with former Meath footballer Damien Sheridan. So Damien, we were hearing how up at the top end of school you began to find yourself through football and you began to achieve some success. Yeah, so just before the break I was mentioning that I done me leave and then I repeated and I ended up making the team again and we ended up being double All-Ireland winners. It was history making in the school and um, I suppose it's hard to think back and I have two pains that last my name on the school, two All-Ireland medals and it means nothing to me because although football I loved and it gave me that platform I can't think about school of being a happy place for me. It You're just, still carrying a lot of baggage yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, it kind of weighs heavily, but I suppose football gave me my identity and I was blessed to play with Senchtown, then senior footballers for 20, over 20 years. But um, You then get, achieved, an, you received an injury though yeah, by playing hard. Yeah, seven years ago, um, my wife found me face down in the garden and I spent ten uh, a week in hospital and found out that I'd... Because it's suffered so many concussions, I brain damage to done, and um, I was told I had to give up. And I felt like my whole identity had been stripped away from me. Um, because I was after having two kids, they were quite young, and I thought in that moment I had nothing, nothing to offer them as a, a dad or a person. So for eighteen months, I wrestled with it, and God help me, wife, I probably wasn't the nicest or happiest person to be around at home. And then after 18 months, I said to hell with this. I was going back completely against doctor's orders because of a, a photo at home, and it's a black and white photo from 1985. And my father was Captain Navin and and I was the mascot, and he's kneeling down holding my hand. And I thought to myself, I don't have that with my kids. So I went back. I said, I'll just play third team, keep out way, get a few photos, a few memories with my kids. I ended up playing second team, played senior, took another few bangs and concussions, and then... It was 18 months, two years ago, the happiest day of my life. I was playing a C, uh, junior C final in Avenue in Parktown for Senchtown. And I was running down the middle of Parktown to the Mahoney's end. And I looked over to the right and my son was there. He was under 17, cheering on, go dad. And then my daughter, my son's addicted to football. He, <laughs> he, he's just in it for all costs. And uh, he loves it, which is great. Well, he didn't pick that up off the no, stones. No, and I love it. And it, I, I felt like a superhero when I seen him. And then my daughter ran out. And she was just kind of starting to develop any interest in sport and football or whatever. And she ran out and gave me a hug and told me she was so proud of me. And I thought the whole world just stopped. And I just, I became a superhero and I had my identity. And I didn't play football ever since. So you, you needed that vindication or you, you needed, yeah. you needed that, didn't you? I needed yeah. validation, I suppose, for all my life being searched and to feel good enough and... I'd probably still be playing over me. My father came to me a few months later and shook my hand and said, look, maybe it's time now. You've and done it. Enough. I'd be very close to my parents and my family and very close to my father. And 
I'd say if you didn't give me that validation that I was good enough and I'd done enough, I'd probably still be running around banging my head. Damien, you're getting a little emotional here, I see. And, and thank you for sharing your story with us. It's absolutely extraordinary. And how you have now turned all that adversity into actually sharing it with other young people. Tell us about the talks you give to schools and, and what is the message you, you want young people to hear? Yeah, well, I suppose it just accidentally happened. I was giving workshops in GA clubs, coaching workshops, and I started telling my own story. As I said, I accidentally said it one night because I thought I was losing the crowd. And it seemed to get a lot of buyback from people. And then the the last number of kind of months, people who have come to these workshops, especially teachers, are coming up to me and saying, well, I'll come into the school and just talk about my own story. And I suppose I'm quite conscious that, look, my story is not the most monumental story in the world, but it is monumental to me. And everyone has a story. And... I just want kind of young people to kind of realise, you know, the strength is in talking. You're not weak for talking. And it it takes a lot of courage to say, all right, I've had a bad day or I'm having a rough time. And there's always, I was blessed. Every time I went home, we always knew we were loved and we had a loving house. And mum and dad didn't actually have to do anything for us, but we knew they were there if we needed them. So I was very lucky to have that. But there is always someone in someone's life that you can go and talk to. And if you, if you just give it to someone else then you don't have to carry all the baggage with you and, and in your case when you and dad lived alone but then the family all joined and mum and dad were at home and you say your parents were there for you that oh, was yeah. a key thing for you they were always there and even my brothers and sisters we would have been very close as a family so there's always someone it might not be mum and dad it might not be brothers and sisters it could be an auntie it could be a teacher it could be a coach and that's what I say to coaches don't underestimate the influence and the opportunity you have with all these young people to come in because we've all a story and sometimes you just need someone to tell that story to. So I'll just go in, I'll tell my own story. It's my story. It was a big deal to me. I still is. It's, I don't want to show my age now, but it's over 20 years ago. But it's still, people might think it didn't make a big difference or didn't have a big impact on someone. But how do you know? Because you're not that person. So let if. And I keep saying to people, your ears are free. Open your ears, let, sit there beside them and just let them talk to you because that might be the only thing that that person needed that day. You don't have to be qualified or you don't need to be qualified to listen. You just need to listen. And in your role as a d- disability and inclusion officer with the GAA, what does that entail? And does your own head injuries, does that has that held you back? Has it impaired you in any way in your working life? Um, well, I do suffer a lot with headaches and brain fogs, but... I'm quite mindful and I have other symptoms and I said, as I said, I'll die a happy man because I have all my photos but I live with them symptoms. I manage my life a bit better. Sleep is key. As science has proven, exercise is key. So I'll have to deal with that and with my projects I just go in and I suppose it may allows me to go in with a kind of blank canvas and an open open eyes that I can maybe notice things in other kids or other young people and I have in different clubs that I've been to, young lads come up to me and just start talking to me for some reason. And I think if you can be vulnerable in front of people, then they'll come and talk to you. Like, lots of people put these shields up in front of their faces. If you can be vulnerable in front of them, maybe they'll put the shield down, you get to see their face and you get to see the true person behind them and maybe they just want to talk to you then. And what kind of questions do the kids ask you when you're giving those talks? Um, Some people said, oh, Ask me, like, what would I do if my kids were getting bullied? And I just say to them, look, Daddy got through it. We'll sit down, we'll talk about it, and I'll help you get through it. And that's all it is, is just talking about, like, that old saying, problem shared is a problem halved kind of thing. 
you know and if if you have someone to go and talk to just talk about it and you're stronger for talking. And obviously for a young person, it's finding that one thing that they know they can be good at or they become, they develop a passion for. But obviously in your case, your passion took you to the point where you caused injury to yourself. You yeah. wouldn't want to be advocating that for your own son or for anybody else to pay that game. No. You'd want them to be safe, wouldn't you? Yeah, like I probably, I probably brought a lot of my trauma into me football and I was always searching for that validation and I probably wasn't the nicest person to train with. There was no crack when I was training. It was, let's get training. I wanted to train harder than anyone because I, I never wanted to, my skill or my performance be second-guessed by anyone. But if, You were competing against yourself. Yeah. And like, I had, I was on the me team with Joe and Brian, two brothers at the same time, but I was, I was probably chasing them instead of chasing anything and chasing myself instead of, there's a saying like, enjoy the ride. I listened to a, kind of a couple of podcasts, podcasts and, all the high performance people say if they could give any word of advice to themselves at 16 years of age it's enjoy the ride don't get overexcited by the ups don't let the downs be too hard on you and just enjoy the moment because it's gone in innocent like I do anything to put my football boots on just one more time and have one more crack at it but I can't so I try and help every other young person to have that kind of comfortable place now all right, well, Damien Sheridan, that's where we're going to leave it. Thank you so much for coming into us and sharing your story. And if anybody would like to uh, contact Damien about one of those uh, talks, we'll share your details with them afterwards. We have those, I know, and we can share them with them. But thank you indeed, Damien. It's been absolutely wonderful listening to you. Still to come on the programme, the trauma of money coach who tells us how to manage our money and the the uh, preventing in incidents and accidents with your pets, predicting the health of your pet. That's a really interesting one. And sound healing and bioenergy. All that and more still to come on The Late Lunch. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. Test drive the all-new AA award-winning 232 Dacia Jogger today. The most affordable seven-seater on the market with exclusive roof box. See blackstonemotors.ie. Now it's competition time on The Late Lunch and we're working in association with the Ark Cinema in Drogheda and we have lots of tickets to give away all this week. Starting today with three sets of three tickets so you and a couple of buddies can go to the movies. So what are you going to go and see? Well, the tickets are being given away for the Equaliser 3 and that's in the Ark Cinema on Drogheda on Wednesday, September the 20th at 8 o'clock. So if you're free that night and you'd like to go to the movies with a few buddies, you know, to enter our competition. What is The Equaliser 3 about? Well, since giving up his life as a government assassin, Robert McCall finds solace in serving justice on behalf of the oppressed. Now living in southern Italy, he soon discovers his new friends are under the control of local crime bosses. As events turn deadly, McCall becomes their protector by taking on the mafia. And it stars Denzel Washington. I love Denzel Washington and Dakota Fanning. Great stars there. Great movie, The Equaliser 3. If you and a few friends would like to go along to that, all you have to do is text the words ARC Cinema to us, followed by your name and location. And you can send them into our usual number, which is 086 1800 658. That's 086 1800 658. Text in the words ARC Cinema or message them or WhatsApp them and you and your pals could be in luck and you could win that prize. And we will be running that competition all week. So we'll have a few more tickets to give away uh, tomorrow and the rest of the week, which is just marvellous. Now, what's happening next? 
up to 30% of Irish people are thought to have committed financial infidelity, hiding money secrets from their other halves. What is that all about? Well, we're about to find out. And Loretta Kennedy, Ireland's first trauma of money practitioner, joins us on the line. Good afternoon, Loretta. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Loretta, what is a trauma of money practitioner and how does one become one? (laughs) Okay, so I know the word itself can have some people really going, oh my goodness, like trauma, that is such a big word. So essentially, it's about really looking at our behaviours when it comes to money, looking at our relationship with money, how we are, how we like make our money, how we earn it, how we spend it, how we invest it. And essentially, like how we feel about money. So a lot of people, um, particularly say like in Ireland, where perhaps, you know, we, we have things like the marriage bar, you know, where women were not allowed to even work in the public service. So many of us growing up didn't have that modelling where maybe we saw females, um, you know, creating money, investing money, spending money. Um, a lot of women were, were housewives. They were given a very, very small budget to work with and the man went out to work. Oh, there was this thing of the the pin money for women, wasn't it? And I mean, in those days, you're talking about the marriage bar, but your women couldn't have their name on a mortgage. They couldn't have a bank account without the permission of their husband. It was insane. It's absolutely insane. When I have three daughters and when I tell them this, they're they're just like, you're making this up, mum. Like, when was this? I'm like, no, honestly, this was in your grandmother's time. I was alive when this was in place. I was one when this was in place. So it's it's big. It's really, really big. So I, I started a business myself completely accidentally because I grew up believing that business was something that men did, that I was great at history. I was great at um, languages, but maths wasn't for me. So I actually started out in law, found out that wasn't for me either. It was very, very dry. Um, and I, I went into psychology, counselling, and then in 2018, I started up a business and rediscovered all of my old stuff around money and maths and making financial decisions and the absolute terror I had when, when actually faced with having to really invest in my business. Because if you have a business, you, you have to invest in it for it to actually grow. Um, and it was then I came across this faculty, um, it's an international faculty with, with people from all around the world, from all backgrounds. And I found the, the entire thing so, so interesting and so fascinating. And the common threads that unite us regardless of where we come from. Um, so it, it, it's really, really big, really big. And do you and think that women, sorry Loretta sorry? to cut across you, do you think that women carry more of this trauma around money, even now, even today? I know historically, as we've said, this affected our mothers, our grandmothers. But today, when young women are educated in the same way young men are, they have the same access to whatever financial planning they wish, they can set up a business as much as a man can. But, but you feel women are still carrying some of this trauma of money as you describe it. I do. And I would also say that men as well are carrying their own trauma in relation to money because I suppose whilst we may feel like, well, we didn't have any choice in, in, in terms of like even having access to money, having access to resources, it's a basic human right, you know, in, in terms of survival to actually have access to resources like shelter, food, water, you know, oxygen. Um, I would say as well, many men were put into situations, even if you think of the coal miners, you know, where they didn't either have have a choice. You know, many of the Irishmen, they, they were sent away. They worked in, 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 in England, you know, in the 40s, the 50s. I mean, Mayo was 
like bereft of men in, in the 40s and 50s because the majority of them were over in England working, rebuilding the cities. So, but particularly when it comes to women, there's a huge piece around, you know that expression, if you can see it, you can be it. Of course. So we, we, we need the proof, like our human needs the social proof that it's safe. First of all, that it's possible and be that it's safe, that it's safe to be publicly successful, that it's safe to publicly take up space that it's safe to thrive, you know. And if we haven't seen that with our own eyes, if we haven't experienced that ourselves, it can be it can feel very, very difficult to really, really trust that that is available to you. So and if that piece, sorry. And if somebody comes to you, if a woman comes to you trying to start her own business and she wants to get some supports with financial planning, what sort of things do you say to her? How do you help her? So I would start with looking at where she's at herself in terms of her money. So we know that we, all of us have some kind of a money script. One of the money scripts I see a lot is the money avoider. And I also see the money vigilant. So a money avoider is somebody who will typically um, ignore the bank statements when they come in. They'll ignore paying the bills till the very last minute. They may do a complete like blowout on ASOS or online shopping and forget about the consequences. They just they, they, they put their head in the sand when it comes to money in terms of what they owe or what's owed to them. They just don't want to deal with it. Typically, money avoiders will do their best to empty their bank accounts <laughs> of any amount of money that they have, even if they're saving. And then money vigilance, oftentimes they can really be workaholics because there's this feeling, this really deep feeling of there will never be enough. I'll never be good enough. There'll always be something that... Or, or I can't I can't trust others. You know, I have to do it all myself. So I would be looking to see what kind of script, what's their operating system. What's so if I'm understanding you correctly, Loretta, you're saying it's kind of like it waxes and wanes. You get the, the yeah. sort of money burning a hole in your pocket and you can't get rid of it fast enough. And then on the other extreme, it's kind of hoarding or being nervous. But there isn't a, a sort of a healthy balance. Is that what you're saying? So it's about really trying to come into the healthy balance. And how we can even identify, that's the first point, is really identifying what is your current relationship like with money? Are you prone to buying things actually that you, you don't really want or need? You know that expression as well, like pound rich. And there was a penny rich, pound foolish. Yes. Where you'll save and scrimp and scrimp and then you'll just have an almighty blowout. Um, it's similar to if you're dieting, you know, in terms of food, like you'd scrimp and scrimp and scrimp and then you'd have the, the big blowout. This is called temptation tax. This, this comes into play when we're in scarcity. And I suppose our brain actually can't differentiate between real scarcity and imagined or perceived scarcity. So if our brain believes that we're in lack, even though we could have a million quid in the bank and a fabulous house and all the food in the fridge, if our brain believes that we are in lack or in deficit, the the chemical reaction that will happen will create behaviours that mimic somebody who is actually like destitute. So okay. it completely changes how we act, how we react and how we respond to things like opportunities, like if a bill comes in, um, yeah, in so many different ways. So it's, it's chemical, it's chemistry, you know. Um, I suppose one of the big things nowadays, because we live in a consumer-driven society, is dopamine. Like dopamine is huge. This 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 rush that we get when we want to like to buy something, for instance. So, a lot of the work I do is about really helping people to really tune into what's going on for them in their body, in their nervous system, 
um, to look at what's driving these behaviours. So if we actually understand these behaviours, at least then we're aware of them and we can change them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Loretta, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for that. It's been very yeah, interesting talking to you. Loretta Kennedy there is a trauma of money coach and it's a very interesting concept and one I hadn't come across before that we have all these embedded and ingrained behaviours that we mightn't even know we have. But if we can understand them, maybe then we can actually um, stop impulsively buying those things online late at night when we shouldn't be shopping at all. We're going to take some music. Now, there's lots of entries coming in for our ticket competition uh, in association with the ARC Cinema and we'll obviously pick out a few winners and let you know who they are before the end of the programme. But if you've ever been around the Moynalvi or Clarkstown area or indeed much further afield in Meath, you'll be well familiar with the site of the very tall mast that was the Radio Tara Transmitter or the Atlantic 252 mast, as they called it, which was taken down recently. And local residents now in the area are asking RTE to hand over some of the 60 acres that the mast was situated on to the local community as a kind of a compensation for all the years looking at that thing going up into the sky, 248 metres high. And joining us now to tell us about it is local resident Enda Quinn. Good afternoon, Enda. Good afternoon, Arla. Thank you very much for having me on. Now, obviously, a familiar sight, very tall mass. Put it in context for us, 248 metres high. Somebody told me that was a couple of times the size of the spire in O'Connell Street. Is that true? That's correct. It was actually over twice the height of the spire in O'Connell Street. That was, was some. Uh, at, the, at the time it was taken down, it was uh, it was the highest structure in the Republic of Ireland. Wow! So it was it was a fairly substantial structure. And at the uh, time, did it sort of impinge on your lives living beneath the shadow of the mask? Yeah, there was a, there was a number of things. Um, the first thing, obviously, was as you said yourself, it was a fairly imposing structure. But it also at the, we we had huge concerns at the time. It was it was being built, and, and after it had been built. Uh, the big concerns we had at the time was was health, obviously, and the physical hazards, and and interference with communications was another one. Uh, there was music on phones and music on hayships and uh, electric fences and all that kind of thing. And the other concern we had at the time was the devaluation of property. Um, that was a big concern. I know of people that decided not to build in the area and not to buy property in the area because the mass is being built. And do you believe the properties were actually um, devalued or was that a fear that maybe didn't necessarily come to pass in the end? Well, look, it's very hard to, to, to say precisely, but I do know that there was people that had planned to build houses and they decided not to because of it. So it had bound to have some kind of an impact on the, on the, on the price of property in the area then. Sure. But anyway, it, it eventually came down in July. I know there was some uh, protests against it coming down. I'm sure there was uh, many of you delighted it came down. But I think there was some concern from groups who represented the diaspora in London, the older people who used the long wave uh, service in order to hear RT1. And there was concerns that they wouldn't be able to uh, hear that anymore. But despite all of that, it, it went ahead and the mass came down. Yeah, the mass was there for 35 years and on the 27th of July last it came down and an awful lot of our community went out onto the roads around the mass and watched it coming down and there, actually, there was actually champagne on the roads <laughs> and there was uh, celebrations uh, in the local community because we certainly didn't want to see it there any, any longer than it was. 
I know. And, and I suppose you'd have a lot of concern for those older people in in the UK. But at the same time, we know that everybody has to modernise. And I suppose the onus yeah. is on us to teach them to use modern technology and, and to, to listen exactly. to the station on the player. Yeah, it sounds hard, but it's life, isn't it? Yeah, well, the, the thing was on like that. The, the mast itself was kind of all technology. It was it was putting out 300, 300 kilowatts of power. And it was reaching places like Moscow and Brazil. It actually was reported at, at, at night time that you could pick it up in Brazil. So you can imagine like that kind of power. Like um, it was, uh, it was all technology, and it was probably uneconomical. Yeah, and Orti were saying the cost of it was 250,000 a year and they couldn't afford it and what have you. And we won't get into the whole debate about presenter salaries in light of that. But but tell us about this move you have on now to actually ask Orti to assign some of the land to you. And indeed, you've, you've asked Meath County Council to give you support with this in, in handing it over to the community for sports facilities and so on. How are you getting along with that campaign? Well, good. Um, I suppose the first thing is... That, like. Uh, obviously, in Manal, we we have quite a small community, but we we have we have only one GAA pitch and one GAA hall as, a, as sports facilities goes in the parish, and um, we have two senior teams and we've a men's team and a women women's team using it, and we also have all the underage teams, and all our training and games go on in that pitch. So one pitch for all them teams is not adequate at all, and we don't have a soccer pitch in the parish, and our national school don't have an adequate sports area. So at the moment we have we have um, and we actually don't have a dedicated community centre. So we have a dire need for for, for more land in the community, and um, we see this that that this is a possibility, and we think we should go for it. Um, at the moment, so far we have approached uh, and two councillors have given us great help so far, Councillor Brian Fitzgerald and Councillor Damien O'Reilly, and they have brought it to the municipal meeting uh, in it was carried it was. It was um, in Dunchuckland there last week, and they have written a letter to to uh, Minister Catherine Martin requesting some of the the Radio Tara site at Clarkton for community use. So they've given us great help, and also to, to date, um, Minister Helen McEntee has called out to our community and met with members of the community, and she um, she uh, is very supportive of, of what we're doing, and and she she's hoping to help us with it in the future. Uh, we've also made contact with Minister Thomas Byrne and we're hoping that we get help from him. So there seems to be good political support, which is positive. Tell me about the site itself. Obviously, going up a hill to the mast, it, a, a large portion of that 60 acres would be sloped. Am I right in saying that? Is it the lower portions? And, and wh- how much of that would make a useful um, second pitch for you? Yeah, well, we, we were hoping to get more than just a second pitch. Um, <laughs> uh, I know that there's a little bit of a slope in the site, but look at everything can be fixed and um, you know it's, it, obviously that there would need to be uh, earthworks in there to, to, to level it out and, and, and so forth to make it usable but that could all be done it's, it's a fairly rectangular site so uh, and there's good road frontage so there are options there and uh, we see it in our community as a, as a, as a very viable option that we could uh, and if RTE were to argue with the, the dire state of their finances that they need to sell off this site now to recoup whatever they can, um, you know, what is the argument in terms of what acreage would you look that they could still sell off some portion of it but give the community a, a portion as recompense? What kind of acreage would you be talking about? Well, look, um, I don't really want to get into that, but, but we'd, we'd be looking for a minimum possibly of 30 acres um, make it viable like we, we have a lot of like this isn't not this is not our plan is not just for this year and next year this is for our generation and the following generation to come because um, who knows what the community is going to need in the future 
And if we don't have the land to make these plans in the future, we can't we can't do it. So a good starting point is having uh, some land to make these plans for the future. But, and, um, and other than the, the support you've had politically, have you had any direct contact with RT regarding it? No, not at all, yes. No. Not yet. Um, you haven't approached them. So you don't know whether it'll be it'll be received well or it'll fall on deaf ears. But at this point, you're putting together your plans. Yeah, well, ultimately, I suppose that the final decision is going to be made at government level. So uh, we're hoping that I, we, we know our two mead ministers. We hope that uh, and Helen McEntee has indicated that she will help us. And we're hoping that Thomas Byrne, and I'm sure he will help us, um, will, um, come, um, I suppose, approach Catherine Martin and um, convince her to, to, to pull with it also, you know. All right. Well, um, and uh, Quinn, thank you so much for that and the best of luck now with your community and uh, the approach. And uh, hopefully you might get some uh, traction there in terms of developing further uh, sports facilities for your community, which sounds like you desperately need. You can't be queuing for a pitch if you're in the under 12s and the the, the under 18s are there and the women are lining up and everybody's lining up. No, obviously you do need those facilities and best of luck in achieving them. Thanks for joining us on LMFM today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So some lovely comments following the item we did earlier today with Damien Sheridan, who'd been bullied at school. Well done to the man for highlighting his bullying ordeal in school. And nice to see that his family were so supportive. I myself had a similar ordeal. I didn't have the family support. I think they just didn't know how to deal with it. But I suppose you just pull through eventually. And always remember, things do get better. So thank you so much for that uh, little message and that little word of wisdom to share with anybody who might be going through it uh, at at the moment as well. Well, now I want you to pause and I want you to concentrate and I want you to listen very carefully. Well, I'm trying to feel the vibes here myself and I'm joined by Graeme Gough and they are his Tibetan Bells. Graeme, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Arla. And what we were just listening to there is sound healing. Tell me about sound healing and how you got into it. Yeah, I got into sound healing, I suppose, around 2017 and just started with a, a small collection and gradually built it up over time, developed a massive love for it. And yeah, that's... Now, you are, of course, a bioenergy healer, first and foremost. What is that? Bioenergy therapy is, it's a hands-on, hands-off type of therapy. And uh, it basically unblocks the blockages in the client's energy field. So I'm not a healer, actually, but what I try to do is to unblock the blockages and then the client's own energy that does all the healing for them then so it does and you work from uh your rooms in slain and County yes Mead. yes and so people come to you there with what kind of problems every type of problem every type of problem imaginable uh, with the bioenergy and the sound it basically works on all issues all health issues regardless if it's anxiety it could be depression it could be sports injuries anything 
And would people have tried traditional medicine or traditional routes and not had had success? Is that why they would come to you? Are they struggling? Yes, in some cases that can happen. In some cases that can happen. But it's lovely just to walk alongside, we'll say, a traditional medical uh, practices. And uh, yeah, it, there's a place for everybody. So there is. And probably what I do gives just a different aspect on things. Okay, so if somebody comes with any sort of anything, I mean, range of ailments, it could be grief, it could be anxiety, it could be arthritis. What what is the first thing you do? Well, normally we fill out consultation form and that gives me an idea of the client's uh, medical history. And it gives me a, a platform then that I can work from then. I have an idea of what techniques to use. Sometimes I will use the sound therapy equipment in with the bioenergy. So I will know which instruments to use and, as I say, use the bioenergy then as well. Now, I've heard people uh, talk about going to a sound bath. I've never done it myself. So, you know, is that the kind of thing you do? Yeah. So the sound baths, again, it can be a one to one or we can do a group sound bath. So, uh, yeah, it depends on the size of the group. It can be one, two, it can be 10, 20 people. And uh, yeah, that's the sound bath is very good. So it normally lasts for anything from about an hour to two and a half hours. There's, there's no time limit on it. And uh, we just work with all the different, I have the Tibetan bowls here, I have crystal bowls, I have gongs, and they all correspond with certain parts of the body on a physical and an emotional aspect. So will you give me another demonstration there? Now, we had a little taste of it earlier, but maybe give us another little go there of what it is you do and let us hear the sound waves and send your healing out to all of us (laughs) because we all need it. There's no (laughs) doubt about that. Okay, so we're just going to, I'm going to play this bowl now just a little bit differently this time. So we're just going to go around the rim. So the sound is building up now. Yes. So that particular bowl is tuned to the solar plexus energy center or the solar plexus chakra. So the way it works is is through entrainment. So the certain parts in our body are tuned to certain frequencies. And sometimes they can be a little bit off. So we say with the likes of the solar plexus, uh, that would be to do with low self-esteem and certain things like that, addictions and things like that. So by playing that particular bowl, yeah. that is going to release whatever blockages is in that area. Okay. So try another one there for me. Okay. Let's see what we hear then. Go for the heart bowl. Okay. Which is very good for grief. Makes a lovely sound, doesn't it? It's lovely, very beautiful, soon. beautiful sound. So the way entrainment works is, if we have a, an issue around, we'll say the heart area, which it can also, 
it can also to do with grief, sadness, jealousy, things like that. When the harp bowl is played, it resonates with all them emotions and it tries to clear them away. It also works with the organs in that area as well. So that's going to cover the heart and the lung area, which is just directly at the back. And so during the session, I would play all seven Tibetan bowls, the the crystal bowls as well. So it's basically just trying to unblock all the blockages and the trauma that's in the system. And in a group session, would it be like a yoga session? Would people be lying down to really concentrate and listen to their sounds? Yeah, you're just lying down where I walk now. We've lovely beanbags. It's so comfortable. And the beauty of it is we could have 10 people there with all different ailments. We could have anxiety, depression, uh, maybe a, a torn muscle or And is there science around this, Graeme? Now, I'm not being a cynic, but you know yourself, you always wonder what is behind this. Is there any evidence to support healing or what has been achieved? Yeah, there's actually a a very good little video on YouTube that shows blood tests, live blood tests taken before a sound therapy session and 20 minutes later. And there is a remarkable difference in the blood cells. And and as you say, that's a very tangible, a physical result, because I can absolutely see why it would have an impact on emotional issues, because you would just calm down and unwind just the minute you hear those bowls. You know, they're going to do you good in that regard. But actual physical healing of a tear, as you say, a muscle tear, that that's harder to kind of imagine, isn't it? Yeah. And what it does is it goes straight to the subconscious mind. And there can be a lot of resistance towards healing in the subconscious mind. And what it'll do is it'll calm down the subconscious mind because the subconscious mind is going the whole time. It's trying to protect us. It takes up maybe 90, 95% of our life. It never shuts off. And it's there to protect us. It's there to warn us, keep us safe. But what the sound therapy does is it can go beyond the subconscious. It can help the subconscious to relax. And then it gets the whole system into a total state of healing. So if you can get the brain to calm down a little bit and get out of its own way, exactly. to, so to speak, then exactly. the physical healing can occur. Exactly. That's exactly so the it. therapy might necessarily do the healing, but it starts the process. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It just makes way for the healing to take place and it takes away the obstacles like the bioenergy. It's just a matter of clearing away the obstacles, clearing away the blockages and then the client's body does all the healing itself. And tell me, obviously, these are Tibetan bowls. Did you have to go out to Tibet to learn how to use these? No, no, just through practice and courses and things like that. Yeah, a lot of practice. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, people coming back to you, if they if if they like what you do, they're going to vote with their feet, aren't they? And, well, and come on it. back or send yeah. their friends or whatever. Yeah, Tell it. me about the first instrument you played here. It looks like a, a xylophone, except that it's sort of hanging up. Yeah, What's so these happened? these are just chimes. And then I also have Koshi chimes. Beautiful sounds. They're they're a bit like what you would have called years ago cowbells. I'm yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful. And what did they do? So they're just a softer sound. It's nice to have a good range of sound doing the sound therapy. You have I have thirty-eight inch uh, sun gong and thirty-two inch earth gong, which 
which are more of a heavier sound or more of a fuller sound. So it's nice to have a variation of sound because as the clients are lying down, you want them to get, you want to nearly store up the energy field, store up the emotions because as that's happened then the, the issues are leaving the system. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Graham Goff from Slane, who came into us today to tell us all about his uh, sound healing therapy. I had never heard of it before. Well, I did. I knew about the sound baths and things, but I didn't know specifically about the individual benefits or how people could have such a range of ailments um, actually attended to in this way. How do people contact you if they're interested? What is your website? Just remind us there, Graham. It's healingtherapy.ie. I'm also on Facebook. It says Graham Goff. And uh, simple yeah. to find healingtherapy.ie. That's absolutely lovely. Thank you so much for coming in today, into us today. We really appreciate it. Now, for your results on the ticket competitions, we have uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then after the com- the, the break, I'll give you those uh, tickets and the winners of the ARC competition. Now you're on the late lunch and they're just going through the names there that entered into the ARC Cinema competition and we'll pick the winners now and I'll give you those uh, names in just one second. But speaking of movies, um, the Barbie movie. And if you remember the actor Will Ferrell, who is the CEO in the Barbie movie that has t- took us the, the movie world by storm there over the summer, along with Oppenheimer. And I was reading an article about Will Ferrell and he said he's a father now of three young boys in, in their teenage years. And he said, having three boys in the house is like running a small correctional facility and I roared laughing when I read it because it reminded me of years ago when my own three lads were that age they're now young men in their 20s and quite sensible but when they were that age and there was these two cousins my sister's lads who were always in our house and there was another pair of cousins second cousins who were always in our house so there was about seven young lads of a certain age in the house and my daughter then obviously in the middle of them all but whenever the Tesco online grocery order or the Dunn stores shopping or whichever you had picked were delivering the order and they would land into the kitchen and these seven large young men would pile in. The food is here. The food is here. Do you know the way young fellas are never fed? You can't keep them fed. And they would land in the door and the poor unfortunate driver would look around with the greatest bewilderment on his face and he'd say to me, is this a care home of some sort? And I'd say, yeah, you could say that. It's a care home. That's exactly what it is. So I I roared laughing when I heard uh, Will Ferrell say, uh, raising young men is like uh, running a small correctional facility and I know exactly what that is like. So look, the ARC Cinema and LMFM competition tickets available all this week and we've picked out three winners and each of these three winners gets three tickets to go out on a nice cinema night out on Wednesday, September the 20th at 8 o'clock on the ARC Cinema in Drada. And the three winners are Caroline Cunningham from Drada, Barbara Smith and John Quayle from Castletown in Navan. And we're going to take some music. You're on The Late Lunch and our next guest is going to tell us all about a genetic test which hopefully will help eradicate genetic conditions in pups. And I'm sure this has got a lot to do with maybe... uh, what's the word to put it rogue breeders we've all heard about the rogue breeders and how can we minimise their activities and how can we reassure people that the pup they're buying has been bred well or the pup they're adopting is bred well and it's a good pup and I think think this is what this item is going to be all about and Tim Kirby is a a well-known local vet and you're very welcome to the programme Tim Hi Orla good afternoon how are you? 
Am I right in thinking that this test you're saying that is an accessible, easy test for pets will actually help uh, minimise problems in litters and particularly uh, those rogue breeders who overbreed and we know all the problems they cause? Absolutely, absolutely. No, absolutely, Orla, and good afternoon to all your listeners as well. One of the biggest problems, Orla, we're seeing in Ireland is, for example, somebody that's going out to get a puppy for the first time, you know, a lot of people just don't know where to start. So they think, I'm going to get this particular type of breed of dog, that'll suit us, it'll suit our family. But in reality, it might actually be the worst possible choice or the worst possible breed of dog that they're actually getting for their circumstances. Um... So what we're actually doing through Pet Bond is we're saying to people, sometimes you need a little help, you need a little education, you need some facts and things like that to consider before you actually go out and acquire a puppy. And part of our process is we're offering this test to breeders. So, for example, if somebody decides, I'm actually going to have a litter of puppies, what we're saying to people now is you can come to Pet Bond and through any of our affiliated veterinary clinics across Ireland, you can get this testing done at a, an absolute incentive and at a very, very cost-effective uh, price point. So there's very little barriers to actually getting this test done. And that really is our core objective, to make it accessible to people, to ensure that ultimately anyone that's getting a, a puppy in, in the future or the immediate future will actually ask, has that puppy been health-tested through pet bond? And eventually you're hoping that this will be on a database nationally that anybody can access to see really is this is this pet, is it free of certain kind of predisposed conditions, if you like? Absolutely. And what I always say to people, Orla, is before getting a puppy, there's some critical factors you need to consider. Number one is where is the puppy coming from? Because if it's coming from a large scale unit, we know there's dog breeding establishments in Ireland. There's illegal puppy farms that just literally crank out hundreds to thousands of dogs every year. That's really detrimental to both the health, the physical and the mental health, I would add, of the puppies where they're not socialised properly. But also to their long term welfare. And we know a lot of those puppies end up in, in either dog pounds, rescue centres, or they have various issues going forward. So with this testing absolutely people can actually say okay where has the puppy come from has it come from a good source and then secondly what actually what is the physical and the health mental health status of this puppy before we actually acquired it in the first place and is there and a direct correlation between overbreeding and uh, a poor unfortunate animal who's just been overbred and asked to do too much and we've all seen those horrible pictures of the poor mummy dogs and, and, and the effort they've had to go to but if, if we see them at those genetic conditions heart problems, orthopaedic conditions are, are they directly related to that overbreeding or do these things occur naturally in, in the dog population anyway? No, there's a direct correlation and as I said there are environmental factors so if that dog is living in a really bad environment where, you know, it's not being sent after properly, it's not being fed properly, it's not being exercised properly. There are acquired factors that will cause certain conditions to be even worse or actually animals will develop conditions. And a lot of these dogs that are in those environments, they have congenital problems that they were born with. So it's coming from one generation onto the next and then more than likely being worse in the, in the generation that follows. And what we're seeing is that an awful lot of, of animals that are bred it's just done purely on looks. So there's actually no considering consideration or thought given to, you know, where was the puppy coming from? What was the health status of the parents of this puppy in the first place? Which is very, very important. And, you know, if people look at a puppy, 
as an investment for life as opposed to just an impulse spend based on looks. It's not like just going into shop and buying a handbag or a pair of runners and you think, yeah, that's grand, you know, we pay money for this today and not consider, okay, this is much, much different. So the mindset needs to be different as well. And I think if people did that, we'd massively reduce the number of health and welfare problems in dogs literally very, very quickly. I was very interested there at the start, Tim, where you said that there's types of breeds are suitable for certain families and certain environments. Um, And maybe, again, we don't know enough about that. You know, we take a notion that we'd like a lab or we'd like a poodle or we'd like a whatever. And we don't actually look into whether that dog suits the family set up and the home. Yeah, that's 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 very important. What we do at Pet Bond is we make sure that anyone that comes to us, we actually have that conversation with them through our team of veterinary surgeons and veterinary nurses right across Ireland, where we can actually, in a very non-judgmental way, sit down and say, OK, this is what we think are good options based on your lifestyle, your the amount of time you have, you know, if you've got finances where you can actually afford a dog in the first place, whether you're able of looking after a dog long term, you know, do you have children in the house, have you people in the house that maybe your house sharing don't actually want to pet in the first place, but you actually forgot to ask them. So we we give all those options to people. And once they've done this in a very considered fashion, there's thought on it that then we say, okay, these are probably the best options. Therefore, you should consider this. Then we actually go on the journey of actually matching them up with the right type of puppy. Now, obviously, we heard loads over COVID about people who were working at home, perhaps for the first time and and lonely and wanted the company and people took in uh, dogs. And then, of course, um, maybe changed their minds as as they were called back to the office or whatever. Um, Have you seen a lot of that in your practice? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's every day of the week you're seeing it all and Likewise, most of the rescue centres in Ireland are either full to the brim or they've closed their books. They can't take on any more dogs in. And it's it's obviously there's an overspill of the COVID pandemic and the issues and the, the, the I suppose the, the frenzy at the time of people to go out and get a puppy. So there has to be a lot of lessons learned from that, that again, this is a long-term project for up to 15 years getting a puppy. So, you know, as I said, with the rescue centres being full, it's a good example where we got to go back to the root cause and say, OK, how do we prevent this scenario reoccurring? Because if we don't actually sit back and learn from this, you know, there's a very, very high chance that it would reoccur again. And obviously the big message is a dog is for life. If you take one into your home, that's it. You need to commit, don't you? They are. And it's, it's not to be taken very lightly. You know, it's not like just like cats are very independent creatures. But when you take a puppy on, I mean, it's a, literally a member of the family that requires a lot of attention. Okay, so that's Tim Kirby. And where can people find out about the genetic testing? And we hope responsible breeders will listen to you and get that test done. Absolutely. We're more than willing to help anyone that's interested. And we've had a huge response. And people can log on to our website. That's www.petbond.ie or just send me an email at info at petbond.ie. That's lovely. And thank you very much for joining us today on The Late Lunch, uh, Tim Kirby. That's where we're going to have to uh, leave it for today. Um, I'll be back with you all going well, hopefully this time tomorrow. My thanks to you for your company and to my producer, Louise Walsh. And have a great afternoon. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.